and welcome to En Route, the podcast where we talk about the journey of faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Have you subscribed to our podcast? You can do that on any uh, any podcast platform, um, and we would love to have you. It's also a good way for your uh, latest episode to end up in um, ready for you on your podcast app. Well, this is the last um, podcast. There probably will be, there might be some bonus episodes, but the last regular podcast of 2021. When we started 2021, we were coming off of a very not so great 2020. And we were all looking forward to 2021 to be a better year than our previous year. And we should have known that it would not turn out that way. 2021 was a very challenging year, maybe not as challenging as 2020, but it was challenging, starting with the January 6th um, insurrection or riot or how, whatever you want to call it, going to persistent problems with COVID, the economy, inflation, there have just been issues with it, and unfortunately, it may want to hold off on trying to say that 2022 is going to be a good year. So we decided I wanted to talk about um, basically everything that has happened in the past year, kind of giving a look back of some of the things, not everything. And the probably the best person to do that is Andrew Donaldson. Andrew Donaldson is the host of the Her Tell podcast, and um, we have, he's actually been here before, this is the third time, and I thought he would be good to have a rundown of things that have happened in the past year, and um, maybe where we're headed in 2022. So, let us go and hear from Andrew Donaldson. to have you here on this kind of a year-end uh, kind of retrospective of 2021. Yeah, I remember when we were really anxious to get into 2021 because 2020 was so awful. Mm-hmm. My, how young and silly we were. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're doing the same thing with 2022. It's more like, no. you know, now it's like, oh, okay, no. I, I'd cited, I can't remember who, somebody on Twitter said, don't none of you claim 2022 is your year. Walk in slowly. Be quiet. Be respectful. Don't touch anything. Just, I was like, that's yeah, probably a good idea. I think so. that's probably the best idea because 2021 was not the salvation we were all looking for. No, it wasn't. But it's always good to talk to you, my friend. I appreciate you having me back uh, yet again. I know. And uh, I just had you on mine not too long ago over on Hertel. So I appreciate you. Always a chance to talk to you. I'm all for it. I am too, and love to get to talk about all of these issues. So first off, I kind of wanted to talk about, because it's getting close to the year anniversary of, of the January 6th insurrection, um, 
there's been some updates on the um, kind of the investigation. We've all heard about the the text with Mark uh, with Mark Meadows, um, who both cooperated and didn't cooperate with the one six committee. Where do you think? How do you think that that committee is going so far? Um, where do you think it's headed? Um, I have very low expectations of this committee. I've wrote about this and commented on it publicly. Uh, a congressional committee is not where you go to find truth. A congressional committee is where you go to further a truth you've already figured out. Um, let, let, let's, let's, let's preface this with a couple of things here. Um, we know what happened on January 6th. What we're doing is uh, we want some detail. Okay, mm-hmm. we we know what we know the beginning and the end. We know what the story arc of January six is, uh, but folks want some detail, and some folks want uh, possibly charges based on those details as they come out. I don't think we're going to get any of that out of this committee. Um, I don't think the committee was the appropriate venue for this for a lot of reasons. One is half the committee is involved in it, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean you don't let crime victims sit on juries for a reason. You don't let crime victims be witnesses. You know, they're, it's just not going to go well on a lot of levels. Um, plus, Congress is just a silly thing. We already know that the Republican Party, with uh, two very notable exceptions, is just not participating at all. Uh, so let me preface it with that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of special prosecutors and things like that, but if there was ever going to be a situation for a special prosecutor, this be it. Um, you need somebody outside of the system to deal with this. Um, but that's just my rant on it. It's here. It is, it is what it is. Are we going to get any truth out of it? Well, yeah, we're going to get truth because we're going to find, but again, perspective, we're just getting details of things we already knew. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I was very critical when they did some things that I think are very unhelpful, like subpoena Roger Stone and Alex Jones. That's silliness. You're wasting everybody's time. Don't do that. Mark Meadows that you referenced. That's, that's the key to this whole thing. Meadows is the one who has vulnerabilities. Uh, he has some executive privilege protection, but not all of it like a President Trump would have. Meadows knows everything because he was the gatekeeper to the president. Uh, we know he has some untoward, untowards things in his past. Um, he didn't decide to not be a congressman anymore and go be chief of staff for no reason. There was other issues involved in that. Uh, Meadows is the key to that whole thing because he's the one guy that really could tell you everything that really happened because he's the one guy that really does know it and has enough vulnerability. You could probably squeeze him a little bit. Are you going to get that out of him? I doubt it. Uh, remember, even if he, we're going through the theater of the subpoenas right now and they're fighting the subpoenas and remember, even if they subpoena him, he can sit there and just take the fifth and there's not a darn thing they can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, now Meadows needs to fundraise and make a statement and show his loyalty and fealty to the cause. So he's going to fight it before he gets to that point. Um, but these are all the multiple levels of mess that this committee is fighting and why I'm pessimistic that we're going to get to a lot of truth. However, we have learned a few things. We do get the emails from Mark Meadows. We've got the emails from the, uh, what some people call the, the greater MAGA, uh, unified universe, you know, all the different characters, um, commentators, people like that. So that stuff's all interesting, but I'm just going to reiterate again. Are we really learning anything new? No, we're not. Did, did we not know that President Trump was MIA most of that day? We knew that. Uh, did we not know that, you know, that this thing, when it started on the mall, that it was planned to be a march to the Capitol and it got out of hand? We knew that. 
we know not so much from the committee, but from the criminal trials that are going on now, and there's 700 some of them, different charges. Uh, there's a database. You can go pull the database and look. We now know what that mob was made up of because of the criminal charges. We now know that um, you called it an insurrection. I still call it a riot, and here's why. Let me just get this out of the way real quick. I think the charges have brought this out. You have different groups of people involved in this. You had, yes, there was the people that just walked through the Capitol and walked out, and what they're kind of the tag-alongs. Yes, there was that group. There was a large group of people that was there to cause trouble. They just wanted to smash and destroy things and make a nuisance of themselves and all that. That's another large group of people. Um, hold on one sec. Sorry about that. Um, there was another smaller group inside of that group that really did think they were going to affect an election, overturn the election, whatever. Now, those people you could probably call insurrectionists, but they were a smaller group of number. And we're seeing now in the criminal cases, just like this, the more severe sentences are going to people who actually attacked police officers, who actually did violence to police officers. They're getting the more severe three, four, five-year sentences. Most of these other people are getting uh, what you call nuisance complaints, public nuisance complaints, <laughs> trespassing, things like this. They're pleading out for time served. They're getting 90 days a year or whatever, these sorts of things. The buried lead on all of this, the system's working. Mm -hmm. I know we don't want to talk about this aspect of it because it makes for bad copy and we don't get a lot of reads saying it. The system's working. Remember, Congress reconvened that same night. As horrible as it was, Congress was back in the chamber that night. And the legal system is dealing with these people. So we need to keep that part of this perspective in it. To bring all of that back to your question, the January 6th committee, what do I think? I don't know that they're going to do much more than just put a little extra color on what we already know. I think they're going to get stonewalled on the big things. I, I, and then, of course, we understand the clock's ticking because it does not look like the Democratic Party is going to hold Congress for the election. So they got really got about four or five months tops because you're not going to get Congress to do a whole lot of stuff this summer in an election here. Um, my expectations are low and they're meeting them. Do you think that things would have been better served if we had had a commission um, sort of in the way of 9 11? Look how good that did. I mean, we had a JFK commission. We had a 9-11 commission. We've had a couple other commissions. Over the years. G government committees don't solve things. I think a lot of people want a reckoning. You are not getting a reckoning for January 6th. January 6th is something that happened. It was horrible. I wrote some of the strongest language stuff I've ever written about politics about January 6th. I was horrified by it. I hate it thing that happened and a lot of and time has passed since then we're almost two years from it now um or a year from excuse me uh people want there to be this massive reckoning on it and it's just not not going to happen mm -hmm. uh, what's going to happen is people are going to adapt to it they're going to internalize it they're going to compartmentalize it they're going to filter it through their normal priors for their politics going forward we're going to talk about it endlessly clearly but no, there is not going to be this massive reckoning where the pro, the people who think this was the worst insurrection in the history of the country, we're going to have this massive public trial and you're going to get full justice. That's never going to happen. Nor are you ever going to get, you know, for the folks that think it was just tourists walking through the Capitol, which is ridiculous, by the way, but we hear that. Nor are you going to get an exoneration because the truth is very much in the middle of that is. You had some very bad people with very bad intentions. You had a larger group of people that got caught up in it and went along for the ride for re various reasons. 
And then there was a very small group of people who idiotically, I would say, really, really thought they were going to overthrow the United States government, which was never going to happen. Um, That's what you're dealing with. You're never going to get full closure on this, but we better get right with what we individually think about it because there's never going to be consensus on it. Hmm. Kind of related to that has been a lot of the, there's been a lot of discussion, especially lately, but over the last year, kind of about what I like to maybe I want to say is doom scrolling for democracy. Um, Several articles that have been written, I think that they're, and I cannot remember the name of the author, but the one that was written in the Atlantic, actually next month's Atlantic issue is pretty much devoted to American, the fate of American democracy. Um, People are concerned about 2024 um, what could happen? Do you think that? It, I guess I'm. I'm always wondering: Is this? Are we hyperventilating about this issue, or yes. is it something that we should be worried about? Yes. The answer okay. to both questions is yes. Um, it, it, here's the not to not to over dramatize this. If you get a cancer diagnosis, what's the first thing the doctor tells you? You know, we're we're going to work out a plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, everybody's jumping on the, the the disease here, which is there's people who don't respect our, our democratic government and elective government. You know, that's that's the problem. We have people that don't respect our country, our government, and by extension, do not respect each other, right? That's the problem. The symptom was January 6th. That's how it, you know, demonstrated itself. Uh, January 6th, we saw the worst, I don't want to say the worst possible outcome because we should have had a whole lot worse outcome than what it was, thankfully, but, you know, the bad outcome of it. But what people, all everybody wants to do now is they want to just jump to the cure and not understand that there's going to be a process involved here. Okay, you have to treat a disease. You have to, you know, doctor it. You have to handle it. We just want to skip to the part where we're curing everything. There's no cure here. This is generations of stuff built up it's going to take generations to fix it i think we're doing ourselves a very bad disservice look again i want to reiterate this because i don't want what i'm going to say taken out of context i was horrified by it i have very strong writing on it you can go check what i'm saying against what i've written and said i i hated it i i watched a lot of that i was actually in the middle of all that i had to get in the car with my teenager and go to one of the thing that she does And I ended up watching about half of the worst of that with my kid in the car, my teenage daughter. So I'm trying to explain that to my own kid like that. I hated what I was watching and I have to explain that to my child. You know, I I had, I had visceral anger on that day watching that, that I had not had since 9-11. And I, I just mean that sincerely, just love of my country. I'm, I'm righteously angry. That's, that's one of the few times in my life that I've been like that. So understand where I'm coming from on this. At the same time, it is not healthy for our politics to be completely centered around that. I understand the un- I understand the implication. You got to understand the factors that went into January 6th. There was a bunch of stuff that lined up to make that happen. We can correct a lot of what lined up to make that happen. We can elect better officials. Uh, we can check ourselves on social media. We can better identify when things happen. Let's take one little piece of this real quick because I think it goes to what you're asking here. We talked about the January 6th committee or commission or whatever we're calling them now. What's the biggest piece of this that we've always known? It's right in front of us. 
well, the Capitol Police fighting the mob, right? That's the that's the main image from that day, the Capitol Police fighting the mob. We just know through our own eyesight why that was. The Capitol Police is controlled by Congress. Every law enforcement and supported agency that was designed and controlled by the executive branch was nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't need a committee to figure that out. The one thing they couldn't control was who was fighting the mob. Okay. I don't need the committee for that. That is as plain as we can make it. Somebody said something to keep them out of the way. Had to be. Had to be. Just comment like that does not go to Congress right now and throw something across the rotunda and watch what happens today. The only way that you don't have a massive coordinated response is because somebody told him not to do it. That's it. That's just common sense. You can have your politics, whatever. That's just facts, okay? If if the congressional controlled law enforcement was the only ones on the line, for the most part, there's a few exceptions because people just jumped in. That tells me what I need to know. I don't need the January 6th committee for that. Now, the committee is going to find out the where, where, and how for some of that. But people's politics get involved because as soon as I say executive, what are they going to start thinking? Oh, well, oh, so you're saying Trump told them not to stop. Hold on. What am I saying? The evidence demands a verdict. Our politics do not demand a verdict. Our politics demand a continuation and narrative for what we want our politics to be. So when the Atlantic, I think this is counterproductive. Not, I don't want to pick on the Atlantic because I like the Atlantic. I'm sure the New York Times, every publication is going to run something about January 6th on January 6th. They're all going to do this. I don't think this is helpful, though, because we're going to relitigate it based on the priors we had anyway, instead of relitigating it as a learning lesson of what we should do differently. And I know people are going to say, well, Trump this and Trump supporters that and the worst. I Even that, I don't know how productive that is, because, again, you had a specific set of circumstances that set up this awful scene. And we understand people got hurt and other things. How does relitigating it do anything other than just harden the bastions that people, you know, it just puts the ramparts up where people are already at anyway. So I get that we want to speak out for democracy. I do that as much as I can. I just don't know that the constant relitigation is going to, because the people that aren't super investigated and relitigating it are just going to start tuning that out. And and you can see it in the poll numbers, the, the, the population of the country has tuned out the January 6th stuff. They just have. They've got a they've got a they've got a pandemic to deal with. They've got an economy to deal with. There's an election year coming up. A lot of people have just tuned it out and moved on. You're not getting that reckoning. And the people that are continuing to advocate for a reckoning that isn't coming, I I think you get to a point where you're actually doing more damage than good with it. Yeah, that's a long answer, but I I, I think it needs that kind of a shoveling to mm-hmm. get to the dirt underneath it because I think we're just. It's great to say, well, democracy is in, democracy is always in danger. Mm-hmm. Democracy is always in danger. But if you cry wolf constantly about democracy in danger when it's really, really in danger next time, nobody's going to listen to you. I think we need to be very cautious on the hyperventilating aspect of it. I think that's a good term to use. I think we need to be very specific what we're talking about in democracy is in danger. Democracy is in danger because a lot of people didn't respect our government and the people thereof and the people of our country enough to respect an election. You need to be you need to be that specific with it. Because now it turns in people's brains of 
oh, well, this election is important. No, you can't overturn an election. No, you can't do this crazy Rube Goldberg insane, never going to work plan where they were going to stop the election. And like, it's just go listen to, go read those emails. It's absolutely insane that they thought that was going to work. Nobody thought that was going to work. You, know, you had to be out of your frigging core to do it. And the senators that were going along with it, they knew it was going to work. They're doing it for the press of it. Yeah, and, okay. and I always found it interesting. They thought that the vice president would just go along with a duty that, as I believe, is spelled in the Constitution. I mean, it was a, his duty. Yeah, I had a we had a fun little debate um, amongst some friends a while back. I was like, okay, so what if Pence did go along with it? Donald Trump's still not going back in the White House. You would have had a constitutional crisis and Congress would have been a mess for months on end and it would have wound up in court and it would have went on and on and on. But Donald Trump still wasn't going to go back. It wasn't going to still be president. Like even if Trump, even if Pence goes along with that nonsense, you know, it still wasn't going to work. Like there's no scenario where that works. There's no scenario where you take over Congress and get Congress to throw. There's no scenario where the states were going to re- um, what, what was the terminology they were throwing away? My mind just went blank. Recertify. There's no, you know, Georgia was not going to recertify. Arizona was not going to recertify. None of it. This was never going to work. So if you're starting the premise of, well, Mike Pence saved democracy. No, he didn't. I mean, he he, he did the baseline human decent thing. Yeah. Like he did the right thing in the end. But even if he didn't, the republic wasn't going to fall. It was going to be messier, but it wasn't going to fall. We need we need to be very specific in what we're talking about. Yes, democracy is in danger because people aren't, and this was just a more glaring thing, but go look at how other countries do elections. They do this like every single election. This is just the first election in a while that we've had something like this happen. But we should learn the lesson so that it never gets close like this again. And instead of doing that, I think we're just trying to take the bits and pieces we want to make another cudgel to do what we were doing previously, which is not helpful. And it's not going to prevent it. It's probably going to make it happen again worse. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've been surprised at is how much, especially, I guess, on the Democrats, but and I guess I would also include, since I'm part of that never Trump side, is how basically it, it kind of rests on, on partisan priors. Yep. So, you know, the Democrats have basically they put forward voting rights bills that they think that somehow are they're trying to sell that that will protect us. But it's trying to solve a problem or, or provide an answer to a problem no one's asking about. It seems like the concern should be things about how do you tally the vote and how do you um, just kind of make sure and protect, kind of protecting the process of, of kind of counting the vote instead right. of worrying about, you know, whether people can get to vote. Because I, mean, I, I think, of course, I'd say this as an African-American, I know that we there's been a history that people not being able to vote or being blocked from voting. But we've had, especially in the last few elections, record turnout um, that whatever laws they've yeah. tried, they have not really worked. So it doesn't make sense to me that we're kind of relying on these old bromides to try to solve this problem that we say is a big problem. Yeah. I, I don't want to get off field from what we're talking about, but there's something happening. If you look at 2020 and you look at the Virginia elections, especially mm-hmm. voter turnouts going through the roof all of a sudden mm-hmm. and it's people are, which is good. 
Oh, that's great. You you want to talk about how to get rid of um get rid of uh, problems in elections? You want to talk about you know voter fraud and this thing? The the biggest thing to get rid of voter fraud is to have more turnout in elections. It, it's not the big turnout elections that you have voter fraud. It's the local elections with forty five people, and then you know that's where that's where shenanigans happen. So the more people voting, it it's almost a self solving problem. Mm-hmm. There there's something happening where the big middle of America. Remember, there's three there's three political groups in America. In the 2020 election, there's the uh, 84 million that voted for Joe Biden, and then there's the 70 odd million that voted for Donald Trump, and then there's the 82 million who took a look at that hot mess and said, nah, bro, I'm good and stayed home. That's the group that's starting to turn out all of a sudden, and that's going to change politics if that becomes a trend. Because those are people that are starting to vote and starting to get involved that otherwise were not. I think some of that's social media. I think some of that's just cultural change. Um, there's a lot of reasons. That's something to really pay attention to because things like January 6th that we're talking about is a kind of overarching thing here. Those things burn through. They burn through politics. They burn through apathy. They burn through uh, the narrative noise job. Like people that don't know nothing about politics when they see the Capitol on fire and a mob around it. Like you don't need to know anything about history or politics to just look at that and go, that's not good. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't know anything about the Georgia recalls. They don't know anything about Trump. They don't know anything about Arizona. They can just see that image. And, you know, if they've had any kind of history lesson whatsoever, they understand, you know, the capital surrounded by people out of control is not good. I don't know if those two things are correlated exactly. I suspect they probably are. I, I think you're seeing more and more engagement for a lot of the reasons you just spoke out. I think people are starting to notice that if you're not involved, things get ugly. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, I'm hopeful because I still, I don't think we, I think we do too much bashing of the American people as a public. We need to be hopeful. I'm hoping that they start getting more and more involved because the the decent folks that are just apathetic to it because it's so messy and it's so ugly and it's so terrible I'm hoping more and more of those folks start getting involved because that'll fix a lot of this because what's happened in the last five years, especially you just have the extreme screaming at each other and you have everybody stuck in the middle. There's going to be a backlash to that. At some point there's going to be a rising of the middle to tell the extremes to shut up because everything's cyclical. Are we in that cycle right now? I don't know. We elected, we elected generic Democrat embodiment and Joe Biden president. So I suspect maybe that's that there's some validity to that accusation. I'll do respect to our president, but he just is. Um, I hate to say that's salt. See, again, people want a reckoning. This actually, that actually fixes things, but it's not sexy and it's not immediate and it's not, you know, publicly hanging your enemies, but that, that, that increased engagement by just good, normal people getting involved in voting that fixes a lot of these problems, but we don't want to talk about that because that's not the sexy fix and that's not the buzzword fix, but that'll fix it. The American people can stop a lot of this nonsense if they ever get it in their head too. And I think we should detail our commentary and our advocacy towards getting more average Americans involved who would just recoil at that because they haven't been as jaded as the political people who use all those powers like armor to justify things, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. You've brought this up a few times, and I think it, it bears kind of sussing this out. And I think you're right that uh, there are people in the political class that want some type of a reckoning. Um, why do they need a reckoning? I mean, why is this so important? And 
does that help? I mean, it sounds like it, that reckoning is actually making American politics worse than instead of better. Yeah. Because it's, it, it's a competition, and the only thing to do with competition is win. Um, democracy is supposed to be a controlled competition where you hash it out, and then once you settle the issue, you move on to the next thing. And that's not how our politics is wired right now. Uh, we should have healthy competition. Um, I, a progressive and a conservative should be able to sit at the table and vigorously fight their corners. But at some point, they're going to have to come to a somewhat livable consensus so that they can both be at the same table still. We've got this thing going on in politics now where we want to try to get some kind of a consensus where the other person never gets to the table ever again after this. That's never going to work. That's always going to fail. That's always going to make things worse. I mean, just look at this. Look at the la- look at the last three days where we went from we have to pass Build Back Better for those poor people in West Virginia to West Virginia should no longer be a state, and who cares what those people think just because of what their senator said? I'm, I'm sitting there just shaking my. I'm you know we're hillbillies. We're used to. But I'm just shaking my head like, well, wait a minute. We you we were supposed to be helpful, and now since we don't, you know. Since we're not a borough in New York City, we don't exist. Which one is it? Pick a lane, you hypocrites. But and that's just one example. And both sides do that. You know, it's same thing with for the children. We're going to do this for the children. Like you know, it's, we get into these silly hyperbolic arguments, and we forget the point is we got to live with each other. Mm-hmm. So so if you're if you're the problem with the reckoning is that you want the reckoning to just wipe out the other side and then you just, you're king of the mountain forever and a day. And that's not how these things work. There's cycles. That's why it's important to, to respect minority rule because the idea is you're going to have your turn in the minority usually quicker than you think. So the, the idea is you maintain the norm. So no matter who's in the majority and who's in the minority, everybody knows to play their role. And we're not doing that right now. Right now we're trying to, and we just saw it with a year's worth of the the Biden legislative agenda where we wanted it to be one thing when it didn't match the reality on the ground. And then it crashes down hard and people get really disappointed and they're disappointed because they ate the narrative for a year instead of just realizing, hey, we got a 50-50 Senate in a deeply divided country. You should tailor your strategy to that. And instead it was, oh, we're going to do this anyway and we're just going to hope it works out in the end. Well, <laughs> there's where you're hoping your hope it works out wound up for you. So it, it all goes together. It's all bad strategy. Really. It's mostly laziness. You know, mm-hmm. people don't want to put the work in of, of convincing and advocating. We just want to yell at our in groups because it's hard talking to the other side, man. I, I, I spend a lot of time doing it. It's hard. It's rough because both sides end up hating you for trying to even do it. But that's how that's how the system works, because you're never going to get rid of a third of the country if you're a liberal, if you're a conservative, if you're a progressive, if you're libertarian, if you're disaffected and don't care one way or the other. You know, at least thank God, at least for right now, you're not going to throw a third of the country that don't agree with you into a camp. That's never going to happen. So you better figure out some way to get a functional government that's going to service all of us as best it can. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I have a theory I wrote about is the, the thing I think that really messed up American politics was the um, kind of demographics is destiny theory. Oh, yeah. Um, the Rui Tixera and John Judas. Because the minute that that happened, what happened is I think both parties reacted to it in different ways. The, the Democrats kind of came to the point that they didn't really have to focus on the white working class. They really could just, if they could just get enough 
um, persons of color, well, then it will just, you know, everything will be fine. And I think with the Republicans, it made them think, well, I guess we don't have to go and reach out to people of color because they're going to vote Democrat anyway. And we don't want those immigrants coming in because they're going to vote Democrat anyway. So it, it just, to me, messed up politics because it didn't allow for both sides to I think be reasonable and to learn how to work with each other. They they thought that they could get to a point where they didn't have to ever try to work with each other. Or and mm-hmm. if they were fearful of that, then they would do whatever they could to block it from happening. Yeah. And how insulting to the the people of color. It's incredibly like, insulting to people of color. Like what are you what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> We we just saw this this week because did you see the story where, um, and this is this has got to be a planning story in Politico. It's got to be because it's the most nonsensical, ridiculous. Like, like there's no reason for this story to be in Politico. Did you see the story about they're talking about Vice President Harris and the radio calling callers in Miami? Mm-hmm. What is, I, I even put on Twitter. I'm like, what even is this story? Like it just baffles me. It's like, okay. AstroTurf calling the radio shows has been going on for forever. That's nothing new. Like you, you get a bunch of people to call a show. You know, you bomb on a show. Like, what is this? Why, why are they worried about talk radio people in Latino markets talking bad about Vice President Harris? Exactly what you just said. Wait a minute. They're supposed to be voting for us. How dare they say something that? Like, do you understand what you're really saying about yourself mm-hmm. here? You mean they, they're not allowed to have an opinion? Um, our our buddy, buddy Mark wrote about the uh, Rio Grande Valley very eloquently in Ordinary Times. Uh, they were talking, like, like Miami and places like that, the Rio, Van, the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, heavily Hispanic, uh, is getting more and more red. Yeah. And they couldn't figure it out. And he's like, he, he's like well, because, because you're talking about the police and the local governments and all this, I hate to explain this to you, but the police in the Rio Grande Valley are, is all Latino. Like they are the police, they are the local governments, they are the school teachers, they are like you, you're doing assumptions and you're doing stereotyping and it's leading you down really bad paths that make not only makes bad politics, but they make you look dumb. You just, you just end up looking stupid when you complain about radio calling callers in Miami talking bad about you. It's, it's like, yeah, that's their right. They're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. The only premise you have to say that they're not allowed to do that is if you think you have some kind of monopoly on how they're supposed to think. Like, is there any other way, way to read that story? I found it highly insulting. I thought I found it ridiculous, but you tell me if I'm wrong. But what other premise is there for having that story? Because otherwise, who cares what the radio call-in people are saying? Mm-hmm. It is. I, I... Like, is, is there is there any other way to take that? No, there is no. <laughs> but other it goes way to exactly take what that. you're saying. They just you. Know, Demographics or destiny? No, it's not because people are still people. And the only way demographics or destiny is if they're these homogenized, stereotyped, cookie cutter people that fit into your political model that you're selling people. And that's not how people work. People have feelings. People get their feelings hurt. You can have a, we're, we're seeing a lot of it right now. You can have a politician that you agree with them on policy and the way they carry out their policy gets you upset or hurts your feelings and you don't like that politician anymore. You know, they, they, we we forget politics is a people business. All business is a people business, but politics is a people business. And when you stop treating them like people and you start treating them as a demographic number or as a spreadsheet to fill in or as a cell count on an Excel sheet, 
you get in trouble in a hurry because you forget you're dealing with people because now it's not, I'm going to convince those people. I'm going to reason with those people as an equal. It's why aren't they doing what I have prescribed them to be on this spreadsheet? And we got a lot of news media and a lot of elected leaders. That's exactly how they treat people of all colors and all classes and all races. And it, it tells us something about them, I think. Well, and this is something, you know, my mother is Puerto Rican. And um, I asked her recently, you know, what do you think of the word Latinx? And she didn't understand it. And I definitely, it's like, do never, never call me that ever. It, it just, uh, you know, it, where do you get that this is some word that Latin people want to use? I mean, I, I don't get it. it. It's, it just, to me, it's, just, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, you know, top-down language never works. No. We we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago on the show, we were talking about how y'all's taking over the world. It was actually mm-hmm. from the BBC. This isn't me saying this, even though I say y'all, because I'm, Ap- I'm an Appalachian ex, I guess. <laughs> um, but this is from the BBC. They're talking about how all over the world people are using y'all, and, and people are using it because it's, you know, it's neutral, and it, it crosses a lot of boxes off in that name. But the when they dug into it, it's easy to say. Yeah, it is. It's easy to say. It's a ground-up change in the language that is also accomplishing by default some of the inclusion things that people would like to do with language. It's naturally happening. Compare that to that, which was all academic and, and news media and those folks trying to press it down from the top down. It's never going to work. The organic's going to come up because it doesn't sound right. It it doesn't make any sense. Um, it all the rom- you know I'm not really great with language, but I I do remember enough of my Spanish and ger- the the romance languages that came from that tradition. You have a masculine and a feminine. And I, yes. Yeah, I get all that, but it's it, you're like you're going to have to redo all the grammar if you're going to really have a problem with that. And I don't I don't do grammar well. M. Carpenter will tell you that, our, our esteemed senior editor at Ordinary Times. I'm not great with grammar, but I understand that you need that construct in language to get meaning across. Um, you know, but organically, people are just naturally becoming more inclusive because it's an easier way to say it. And it's just more natural way to say it. They, had a, they cited a case in Australia where businesses are doing it because it's easier to fit on social media and on their inner office communication, they can just put y'all and it's inclusive and then, and they're done. It's a, it's a naturally progressing thing. The, the Latina X and they can speak for themselves. I, I, you know, I, I, I've tried to get out of the business of speaking for other people, but it it just doesn't seem like it's ever going to work because it's another one of them top down. Like we just talked about, it's checking off a box for somebody else. And then you're wondering why the other people don't want to check off the same box. Well, because they don't even know there's a box. Mm-hmm. Like you, 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 you think a guy just working his 12 hour shift really cares. Like, you know, some of this stuff we get really silly with. I, I, I believe in respecting people. If you throw me what you want me to refer to you as, um, I will do my best to accommodate you within reason. Um, but that's not what that is. That is people with, frankly, too much time on their hands and instead of solving a real problem or generating a problem to solve because they they got a solution looking for a problem, I think. Just my I, I think that it ultimately isn't helpful for the Democrats because if you're assuming that a certain group is going to vote a certain way and, and you they 
don't have to really do much except to make sure that they go and vote. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that we are all thinking that the the GOP is going to take over Congress in the next next Congress, because in some ways it was just kind of a given to them that uh, Latinos were just going to go ahead and vote for for Biden and not vote for Trump. And surprise, surprise, they think for themselves. And, you know, you need to give them a reason to vote. It's, they're not just going to vote because you think that they're going to vote your way. The Democratic Party has a long history of doing this. Um, I'm not picking on the Republicans to do this with different, uh, especially with minority groups and things like that. So they, they, we'll give them their turn some other day. Oh, yeah, they, they are far from innocent. So. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but the Democratic Party has a really bad habit of this. They just write off large pieces of the electorate as unworthy. Like they just, And I mean, they're pretty open about it. They're pretty blatant about it. They're just like, well, those people are not worth our vote. I'm like, well, yeah, those people are 49% of the country and you're trying to run a national party. I don't know how you're going to have a national party when half the country, you're just saying, I don't care whether they vote for me or not. That's that's not good politics. They, who was it? One of our friends on Twitter the other day said it, and I, it's freaking brilliant. I, I apologize for not citing him because I wish I would have said it. But he said the biggest problem with the, the Democratic Party right now is they need candidates that are under 70 and they need staffers that are over 45. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of this is. You have, we saw it with the Biden, the thing with the Biden thing is like, yeah, Joe Biden is... I don't want to start to fight decently moderate by modern democratic standards, but his staffers are all 20 and 30 year old progressives. They're all, all of them are, cause that's who those folks are. So of course he was going to lurch to the left cause that's who's writing all the stuff. Um, but those folks, because they come from a certain pipeline and they all go to the kind of the same schools and they come through the same advocacy organizations and the same political parties, there's a lot of oneness there without a lot of, outside experience. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just, you know, I'm friends with them. I, I talk to them. We have some of them writing with us at ordinary time. That's just who those folks are. Uh, they got a bubble too. And their bubble gets burst sometimes, like this week we just saw. Um, and they're just shocked and shaken that nobody wants to see the world their way. And they've never had to um, negotiate it. You know, you for, we forget before President Obama, go back to the Clinton years, and this is the formative of my politics because, you know, 98 was my first election. I grew, you know, that was when I was paying attention to politics. All the stuff Clinton gets credit for was Republican Congress. Mm-hmm. Everything Reagan passed was a, was a heavily, Congress. a heavily <laughs> bigger majority than we're probably going to see in our lifetimes again. Mm-hmm. Democratic Congress and Tip O'Neill. It used to just be the standard operating procedure that you just had to work with the other party to get it done. All of Reagan's, almost everything Reagan did went through a Democratic Congress. Everything Bill Clinton did went through a Republican-controlled Congress with a, with a couple of notable exceptions. Um, a lot of what George W. Bush did went through a split Congress. Then with President Obama and President Trump, we are now in the cycle, and, and I think it was going to repeat itself, and we're well on our way to seeing this. We have the cycle now where you get a president comes in with full power, the trifecta, Senate, House, White House. President Obama came in, got one piece of major legislation passed. I I know, too, if you want to count TARP, but I think that's a separate issue because of the circumstances of 2008. Let's not get into all that. Basically passed one major piece of legislation in the ACA, and then the midterm wiped out your majorities, and now you got to deal with the split Congress again. 
uh, President Trump came in, got one major piece of legislation, the tax cut, the corporate tax cuts, and then got wiped out and he had to deal with <laughs> and didn't deal with, frankly, uh, a split Congress. I said, I wrote it, you can go back and look, and I'm not just saying this because lots of other people said it, President Biden, you're going to get one major piece of legislation outside of the COVID stuff because that's that's a different matter, kind of like the TARP with President Obama. It's a different issue. You're going to get one major piece of legislation, and that's it. What do they got? They got one major, major piece, piece of, of legislation. legislation. Now, this is a little different because I think people are freaking out. We talked to uh, Toffer Cottle this morning on Hertel, the Thursday, the Wednesday edition of Hertel. Go listen to it. People need to get over this. BBB is not dead. BBB is already in reconciliation. By law, they have to pass this thing. They're going to piece it out, but it's still mm -hmm. going to pass large chunks of it in January. Everybody just calm down a little bit. Yep. Um, Manchin, we're going through the stages of Manchin. He's negotiating. Uh, he's telling you no so that when he turns around and says yes in three weeks, you think he's great. Just everybody settle down a little bit. But the, the, this is the norm now, but it's a new normal. People don't realize in the not-too-distant past, Congress did work things out. Um, I don't think this is sustainable. At some at some point, the dam's going to have to break on this because nothing ever gets done. Uh, the reconciliation process, there's a lot of blame for the all the bills going through the leadership instead of being brought to the floor in what's called good order or standard order in, in Congress. That's a big problem, but that's a very long discussion. I, I think the dam's going to eventually break on this because people are going to get tired of losing their power every two years. So just out of self, <laughs> self-preservation, they're going to figure out like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we get somebody in the presidency and not lose Congress two years later? Maybe we should change up. But, you know, right now they're still putting their hand on the stove and saying the stove ain't hot. So we're going to do this at least through the next year. And then we'll see. I, I By the way, while we're on this subject, and I'm ranting on it anyway. Um the Democrats are going to get wiped out in 2022 unless a couple of things happen, which may happen. I never count the GOP's ability to pull defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, especially with the Trump elephant in the room, uh, you know, careening through Georgia, destroying everything it comes in contact with and places like this. Um, there's a very good chance that the Republicans get the House in 2022 and make a shambles of it and Biden gets reelected in 2024. Everybody just calm down. Because you remember how the ACA passage got us President Mitt Romney, right? Mm -hmm. And you remember how health care not getting passed got us, you know, <laughs> you know, Clinton losing out in his first term. You know, these things these things are not set in stone. Everybody needs to simmer down a little bit. So kind of moving on just to um, from politics over to religion. Um there's been a lot going on in the world of um, evangelicalism in 2021, um, especially going on with the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Um, there's been a lot of changes and um, things happening, especially with abuse. Um, and most recently we had uh, Beth Moore, who was a kind of a big lay leader in the SBC who has since uh, moved on to the um, Anglican church. Um, and I have, I've kind of only somewhat followed this, but it sounds like someone has been basically stalking her um, for, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, that's how I read it too. In, in the, uh, at her new congregation. Um, what are some of the things that you salient things that you see coming out of, the world, especially of evangelicalism in 2021, where do you see that going in 2022? 
Yeah, and one of these days I really need to articulate why I don't like that term so much. I know we talk about it privately all the time, but I, I really yeah. need to get around to articulating why I don't like that term. Um, so evangelical, at least as we understand it, in the year of our Lord, 2021 in America, there there's something happening um, that's, it's not theology based it's entirely culturally based um and i know you've written and talked mm-hmm. about this and we've t- we've talked about it just privately but um the the evangelical church is having a crisis of identity they don't know what they are they have spent the last f- eh, let me be really careful how i say this because i want to I want to be exact here. They've spent the last 25, 30 years in what's called the church growth movement in evangelical circles. Mm-hmm. That comes out of the Rick Warren model, that sort of stuff. Um, mega churches. Make the church as big as you can. Concurrent to that happening, the world changed on them. Um, they're identity crisis is the only way I can explain this without getting into the, because it, this, this doesn't really even have a lot to do with theology. It doesn't really have to do anything to do with religion is evangelical Christianity, your religious group, or is it your cultural tribe? That's the question. Uh, we talk, we talk derisively about cultural Catholics. Uh, the president is always fighting that terminology with people. Um, justifiably, justifiably so in some cases, but you know, the man's a Catholic. You cannot argue he's not a devout Catholic. He, he's a Catholic. This is what he is. And that's also quite common in mainline Protestantism to talk about a cultural. Yeah. And and I'm Christian. And you know, for folks that don't know me, I'm, I'm a Baptist, so I'm, I'm not a mainline. I'm fairly, what used to be fairly traditional Baptist, whatever Uh that means. That doesn't have (laughs) any meaning now, but you know what I'm talking about, but I'm, I'm a Baptist. Um, we derisively talk about uh, cultural Judaism, mm-hmm. you know, cultural Jews derisively, I think unfairly in a lot of cases, especially America. Um, I don't know that cultural evangelical Christian is the appropriate nomenclature, but that's what's basically happening here. We have a group of people um, in, and I, I don't know if they're a majority, but they might be. Um, because I don't know that you'd ever be able to measure this. Cultural evangelical American Christianity is their tribe above politics, above just about everything else. Because we've made the evangelical church in America this parallel universe. Uh, we have Starbucks in our churches. We have Christian schools for our children. We have Christian music. Um, and I don't mean that in the tradition of secular music, I mean it as an alternative, mm-hmm. which again, in and of itself, nothing wrong with that. But but what starts happening is, is you have created this entire ecosystem separate from the world with the name Christian on it, but it's exactly like the world or as close to the world as we can possibly get it. There's a lot of theological stuff that goes into that, that I just, we just don't have time for in everybody's eyes would roll. But the, the, this is the, this is the crux of the crisis because when, when your church and this is what's happening in evangelicalism. When your church becomes your entire ecosystem, I'm talking all income, everything about your life revolves around your church, which again, in and of itself, not a bad thing. That's what Christianity asks for in its, in its pure sense. You know, you should be the member of your church and that should be the center of your identity. I'm talking about evangelical Christianity. 
you've made this separate ecosystem. And now why isn't the rest of the world exactly like our ecosystem, not our belief system, not evangelism, as in we're going to go convince the world that the way we're doing it is a better way to do it. And this is the way that you find God and find peace and find salvation. I'm talking about you have to live like us. You have to look like us. You have to listen to the music we listen to. You have to enjoy the things we listen to. And we should have a protected status in society based on our ecosystem. Um, that's going to sound really, really harsh to a lot of ears of even people I trust and that I'm friends with because they don't like going there with it. But that's what we've done. And I know it because I've done it. I've sat in those pews. I've done it. My, I've, I've, my kids have gone to both private and public schools over the years. Um, my two youngest are in public now. Um, I, I know these circles really well. I know what I'm talking about in this realm. And I've also studied it for the better part of 20 years, both per, just personally and academically. That's what you're dealing with. You're not talking, you're talking to a fish about the water it's swimming in. When you're talking about evangelicals, that's what you're talking to. So if you can't speak bubbles, they're not hearing anything you say. I just don't know how to explain it to an outsider any better than that. It has its own language. It has its own culture. It has its own uh, worldview. And the worldview is separate from the traditional Christian worldview that we talk about as a worldview as opposed to, you know, uh, multideism like a Buddhism or like an Islam or like a secular humanism, those traditional worldviews, the evangelical Christian worldview in America right now that most of those folks have is different from the traditional Christian worldview. It is very political. It has become very political. It has become very, um, people unfairly tie it to people's eschatology and how they see, see the end times. There's a little bit to that, but that's, that's a background sort of thing. I, I think that's an unfair characterization. Mostly it's they want to live their lives according to how their cultural ecosystem prescribes them to live their lives. And the problem now is, and this is a bigger problem in society. Again, I don't want to just pick on evangelical Christians because I is one, even though I don't like the term, I is one. You can no longer live in your ecosystem. It's not possible. Social media, the globalized world, the globalized marketplace, this ain't the 50s where you can pick your neighborhood and live in your neighborhood and you never have to go to any of the other neighborhoods. That's not the world we live in now. That's the conflict. So what's going on with with uh, what we're going to call cultural Christianity, which I think is unfair. There's going to be better terms for it down the road. So just up front, I'm saying it's an unfair term, but for lack of better what their their chief complaint is that their ecosystem is being upset. Like really, when you cut through all the noise, cut through all of it, the chief complaint is their ecosystem is being upset. That's not a solvable problem. You're not going to be able to placate that. You can try to reason with folks that, hey, your ecosystem is unreasonable and is a is not reality, but you're not going to be able to. Then once you put religious overtones and beliefs and people's faith in God and people's patriotism and all that stuff on top of it, you've just encased it to where it's untouchable. It's a taboo subject. You can't talk to the, and again, we're talking about a subset here. The, the, the folks who think who they elect president is part and parcel to where they worship and how they do things and how they raise their children and how much they love America these are taboo subjects you cannot discuss with them. They don't want to talk about it. They ain't going to hear it. They're going to they're going to call you all sorts of names for even broaching the subject. I don't think you're fixing that 
And I don't think the people that are against it, I don't think they even understand it. I don't think the people in it understand it either. The news media sure doesn't understand it. Um, this is not Jerry Falwell's um, uh, moral majority. That's not what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with something completely integrated into people's lives and into their identities. This is this is moral majority 6.0 uh, grafted in with nanotechnology. Like you, you're not getting this undone. I this is pretty much identity politics. It's it's completely identity politics, but it's got a cross in one hand and a flag in the other. Mm-hmm. And I I have strong feelings on the cross as a Christian, as a very bad Christian, but as a Christian nonetheless, I think my patriotic bona fides are pretty well established at this point. Um, especially anytime I try to you know walk around and do anything, I'm just I'm telling you I love both those things with all my being. But like all things, they can become idolatrous. And I don't mean the hotel with that, you know, woman you shouldn't be with. I'm talking idols. You, your church and your faith can be just as much an idol as anything else. And I think some of those folks have gotten to that point with it. And it's identity politics that drove them to that point. They didn't get there naturally. They got kind of conjoled into it. They got fired up into it. Um, they've been fundraised into it. They've been... Uh, pitch botted into it, <laughs> for lack of a better way of explaining it. Um, it, it. It's a herd running in one direction. Uh, I think there's a cliff at the end of that direction. I, I certainly don't think it's good for the church. I don't mm-hmm. think it's good for America. I specifically, and I'm heartbroken, that it's not good for those people, those folks. Like As much as I disagree with what they're doing, I hurt for them because they're setting themselves up for something that's going to be harmful to them. It's going to be harmful to their faith. It's going to be harmful to their family. It's going to be harmful to our country. So I, I, mockery is not going to do this because these are, these are people that we need to be productive citizens. And I'm afraid they're taking a path where they're not, they're not only not going to be very good Christians, which I hate to get into, they're not going to be good citizens and they're going to be a problem for themselves and for others for a long time to come. I fear that's a long riff on that, but it, it's just, it's something I have to think about and I have to struggle with it because this, those, those aren't stats to me. Those are friends. Those are family. Those are people I know and care about. Those are very much people inside my circle. You know, I, I had to step away from a church because I just, I, and I, I had a meeting with the pastor and I told him very bluntly privately in his office. I'm like, I'm not talking about Trump in Sunday school every Sunday. I'm just not doing it. I cannot do this. Like that's that's not what I'm here for. Like I'm I'm okay with politics. I'm not one of those you don't talk politics in church because that's silly. Of course you do. But I was like I I can't have my Sunday school class be about Trump nonstop. I'm just not doing it. And you know I I was just like you know I I'm not mad at anybody. I didn't cause a fight. I didn't cause a riff. I didn't go on social media and say a word to anybody about it. I just had a private meeting with my pastor, and I just like here's here's why I'm going somewhere else because this is better for everybody involved and I don't want to be a problem. And it wasn't even even if I was a Trump supporter, which I am not, you know, even if I was, that's that's not what that time's for. Like if you want to do that, that's fine. But that's not what my family needed. That's not what I I needed spiritually. So again, that's just me. But I I see the stat numbers, I see the baptism numbers for the Southern Baptist Convention. I saw their convention stream numbers. I watched almost all of their their general meeting, which is their I call it the the general meeting they call it. They'll get picky about it. I watched almost all of it this past year. Because it's it, because of what's going on, it's live stream. 
there, there's a culture fight inside the Southern Baptist Convention that is ripping it in pieces. Um, it started years ago in the seminaries, and now those those people they trained in the seminaries are now the pastors, and they're and the they're rising up to bite them, uh, which is a whole other topic for another day. But yeah, yeah it, it's important though. You're you're talking about the second biggest denomination in the country after Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is a huge chunk of the country, and it's one of the most politically active chunks of the country. It's you an better, institution. You better understand it. I mean, even even if you can't stand it, you better understand it. Yeah, I agree, and I think it. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that, and I think we may have talked about this before that, and this is kind of one of those cases where history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes in that um, it seems like what we're seeing here again is kind of what happened 40 years ago between conservatives and moderates, but now it's between conservatives and ultra conservatives. It's kind of the same thing. And say what you want about the fundamentalists of the 50s and 60s and the you're talking about the fundamentalist movement post-World War II, mm-hmm. something I'm pretty familiar with, have a little bit of background in. Say what you want, but when they talked about separation, they meant it. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you say whatever you want. They were serious about it. They wanted to be separate from the world. They, they weren't going to have all that rock and roll music, and they weren't going to have all that. This is a very different beast. This is not separating they want separation from the world which was the fundamental principle of the fundamentalist movement was separation that's nothing new by the way the puritans were doing it the you can go all throughout it you know the jacobins were doing it like you can go all through it the maccabees were doing it they wanted separation from the rome like this is not a new thing this is this is just part and parcel with religion um but what what you find from that is this is not separation from the world this is the opposite almost of where it's hybrided into not only should the world be exactly like us, but we have a duty to make the world be like us. And that's the difference because now it's, I want governmental power to make the world be like me. And that's some dangerous stuff. Like on it, on its face, I don't care that your cause may be good or your cause may be righteous. When you go to the place of, Everybody has to do it my way, and we're going to use government power to get it, which is where this nationalism stuff is going. It always ends there. It always ends with make the government make people be like me. That's really dangerous. That is catastrophically dangerous, and you got to nip it in the bud when it first starts. Where it first starts is, hey, I'm, I'm the victim, and the government's going to fix my victimhood, which is the level that this is at right now. And I, I would argue their victimhood strenuously if you've ever been outside of the United States of America for more than five minutes and or if you can read. But like we're talking about, and that's why I'm so harsh about it when I say their ecosystem, their ecosystem is being upset. So therefore, they're the victim. So therefore, we need governmental power to reinstall our ecosystem. And if that burns the whole rest of the world down, that's just too bad. That's where that heads 100 out of 100 times. It always heads there. And that's when when bad stuff happens and I will never be part and parcel to it. And I'm going to say now before it gets there so that the people that'll listen to us will peel off and maybe stop it and say, this is bad and it's going to end bad and you need to get a hold of it now. Where do you see this leaking into politics and, and what do you think it's the result when it gets into politics? I mean, it basically already is, but yeah. when it gets into happening at the state house or happening in Washington. Well, I mean, you just, 
you know, I hate to use this example, but you just had Jeffers had Trump this past Sunday as we record this a uh, couple days before Christmas here. He just had Trump gave him a microphone and walked off. His, how picky are you about who gets on your pulpit? Well, pretty you, picky. You, you know, yeah. these are not small things. Mm-hmm. These are not small things. And, and I understand that individual is all laid up with the politics and stuff. What are you really saying to your congregation when you, and I don't care who it is and how much you agree with them. What are you saying to your congregation where you, you take what you've been entrusted with as a pastor or a priest, if you're in a Catholic church or whatever, a rabbi or a cantor and whatever, you know, an Iman and an Islam, I don't care what faith based. If you're given the sacred trust of being the link between a group of people and their God, and they're saying, okay, you're you're going to fill in any gaps we don't have. You're going to fill in knowledge gaps. You're going to comfort us. You are our spiritual leader. What are you telling your people, your uh, the people you're responsible for, when you take the microphone that they're entrusting you to make sure they find God with, and you hand it to a political figure, and you go sit down? Mm-hmm. I hate to be that blunt about it. That's what you just did. What did you just tell them? Not through your words. Actions, not words. I, I go over this. Actions, not words. Jesus was really big on actions, not words, by the way. I just want to point that out. Actions, not words. What did you just tell them? Louder than anything you can ever say with your mouth. What did you just tell them? I, it, it, that the actions... I, no. It's... It's it's counter to everything that a spiritual leader should be doing. I'm not saying you don't talk about politics. Of course, no. you talk about politics because your because your people are upset and hurt over politics. So you have a duty to address them. I don't even if you're progressive or whatever. Um, I don't I don't care. You have a duty to talk about politics in your church to a level. But when you just turn your whole you turn your pulpit or your stage or whatever they get, we don't even have pulpits anymore in most churches. Sadly, then pet peeve. Um, when you turn over your coffee table, <laughs> your high-rise coffee table, too. But what did you just tell them? You just told them everything we do here is subservient to politics. We're going to stop what we're doing and let this political figure come in because what he's doing deserves our attention above, you know, your hurts for the week or our sermon for the week or what God might have for us this week. That's, that's bad business in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. That's my opinion, but I I think it's God. Just the visual of it is just just atrocious. Mm-hmm. Like, it does is. it not occur to them? I I hate to rain on this. I just can't help it. The <laughs> vision, just the visual of it. Like, where did we get to a place where the congregation, when you go to do that, the congregation then just get up and leave? Like, I don't think we've walked out of church services enough. I don't think we've thrown enough people out of Congress lately. I don't think we've banned, we haven't shouted people out of the public sphere enough lately. We, we, where did we get to this herd mentality where whatever happens on that stage is just okay? Like, God willing, we get some people that stand up in their churches, turn their back, and make a scene walking out in the middle of the sermon. Like, I, I know some old school guys enough. You said the wrong thing in the pulpit, they'd start throwing stuff. They may physically come up there and get you. Like, that wasn't that long ago. You know, and now we just sit there. And I'm not advocating violence. Please understand me. But isn't there some things that if somebody walked in your church, in your house of worship, among your friends and family, your spiritual congregation, 
Is there something they could say from the pulpit where you would stand up with everybody looking and say, no, that's wrong, and turn around and walk out? I can think of a few things. But apparently there's no boundaries for a lot of folks now, and that goes back to that thing we talked about where it's more identity than theology-driven or belief-driven. If it happened on the stage, it must be okay. If it has this label on it, it must be okay. If it has, you know, the right politics or the right, if it has the right intentions behind it, it must be okay. And we are just paving the road to hell, both as a democracy, as a democratically represented people, and as a church, and as whatever, just as humans being, we are paving a road to hell with those things. And there's just not enough people saying, no, I'm afraid. Why do you think that is? Because human nature is undefeated. Hmm. You know, as, as Christians, we're both Christian people. I'm sure people that aren't Christians are listening to this. As, as Christians, we believe in a fallen man, a sinful man that needs to be redeemed. You know, the entirety of your existence is redeeming yourself to your creator because you're in a fallen state. And we have theology disagreements on how we get there, but that, that's, that's the core of life is redeeming yourself to your God. As Christians, that's what we're trying to do. We, we've got a whole mess of folks, and we got too many Christians, frankly, who've got that backwards where they think they're the righteous and they need to redeem everybody else. Mm. And because that feeds into our ego better, it takes humility to admit that we're all fallen and we all need to do better. And humility doesn't trend well on Twitter, and it doesn't you know, get a lot of likes on Facebook. Um, but that's where it needs to start is, okay, we're all fallen. How do, how do we get from point A fallen to point B redeemed together? And it becomes this mad dash where we, we just individually want to do it. And we want to make sure we step on this person to get there, which that's not going to work either, but that's a theological argument for another day. (laughs) But that, you know, it just becomes one more, well, what we just talked about earlier, you know, competition, it becomes another competition and you just want to win the competition. And that's not a winning competition. That's a, Hey, bud, you may not know this yet, but you're going to die someday. And the only thing that goes into the, if you're a Christian, like a, the only thing that goes in the next life is people, yep. souls of people. So maybe we ought to treat the people better and the things a little less so because none of that's going with us. And those people are, you know, it's, it's just, you know, human nature is undefeated. People want to be ugly to each other. They want to be rude. And, you know, peace is the exception. Wars are the normal. And it, it goes and it's the same whatever religious thing you put on top of it. Well, um, I know that you have a hard out coming, um, but I wanted to ask one wrap-up question. Um, is, we did get a little afield. I apologize. No, 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 no. This is great. This is great. <laughs> but I, I do want to ask, what do you see coming in 2022 that are going to be issues that we will all be dealing with? Where's my Mr. T pushing close up uh rocky three shot pain yeah this is gonna be a this is gonna be ugly like we've never seen in politics um the the build back better agenda stuff's going to get slammed through congress because the desperation is going to set in um what's going on in georgia i i think georgia is what to really watch in this midterm because that's where the trump folks are re that's their alamo Mm-hmm. Um, that's where they were done wrong. That's where they've personally invested. Um, they're spending a lot of time and money and energy in it. I think Georgia's the place to watch in this midterm election as far as what's going to happen in 2024. Georgia's going to be ugly on a level we've never seen before. You have demographic change 
Uh, you have a minority that's getting close to being a majority in a lot of places. Uh, things things that the national press isn't covering yet, like the Buckhead City election things that's coming up, where oh, we're just going to carve out all the rich white parts of your of Atlanta. Like you want you want to talk about some stuff that's going to get ugly in a hurry, and that's going on on top of, um, of course, Senator Warnock is up for reelection. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been telling our friends on the right over and over again, and I I fear they are not listening to me. People do not understand that Raphael Warnock special election in January. We, we were talking about what you can and can't say about a pastor. Uh, that got ugly. That got personal. They, the operatives on the right and in the Republican circles went somewhere that you do not go to the church-going African-American community. Like, you, you, you do not go where they went. That's fresh. That's in their mind, and they're still angry about it, and they should be, frankly, in my opinion. Uh, Raphael Warnock's going to be a really hard out uh, for the Republican Party for a lot of reasons that race could get very ugly again because it was ugly just a year ago. Very, very, I, I don't think people even realize how ugly that got. Um, so those are things to watch for. The midterms are going to be what they are cyclically. The Republicans should do good. They may screw it up. We'll see. And again, this is all just precursor to 2024. Is Trump going to run again? Is he not going to run again? He's backing a lot of candidates that aren't going to win mm-hmm. in 2022. Let's just be blunt here. He's picking bad candidates. Does that diminish him? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll go with Mr. T. It's going to be a lot of pain. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be bad stuff. We have to keep our bearing, my friend. I, I, I will say this about 2022. We're going to get clarity on a lot of these issues. We're going to know where our country's at. We're going to know where the media's at. We're going to know where the commentary's at. I know it's going to be ugly, but I think it's going to be a constructive and clarifying ugly. And I think we're going to know a lot better going into 2024, who we are, what we are, and what we need to do going forward. So that's the attitude I'm going to take up. It's like, I know where the bad spots are going to be. We we still got a pandemic going on. We, we don't know where, you know, we don't remember for the, for the 2000 election, we're still farther out than when COVID hit. Um, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, that's where we're at on all that. So we're going to travel and hope though. Yeah, that's really all we can do. Yep. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to chat with me here on this uh, pre-Christmas event. And um, let me just say to you personally that I hope that you um, have a a good Christmas, Merry Christmas, and a hopeful 2022. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Always appreciate you. Enjoy talking to you. All right. Take care. Thanks, buddy.